This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a sought-after specialist in Baroque and classical period violin in Australia. Sky McIntosh is the founder, artistic director and principal violin of the Australian Haydn Ensemble, which for the last decade has made its mark on historically informed performance practice in this country. And they'll be celebrating their 10th birthday with a performance of Haydn's creation, which I think is a great way to mark the occasion. Sky McIntosh, thank you for being in conversation with me today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's a bit of a big one to get your teeth into, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that certainly for me, feels like an amazing opportunity that has somehow magically aligned (laughs) with our 10th birthday. Oh, this wasn't deliberate. Well, it sort of was. I had it in my mind that, you know, this year would be a really special season to celebrate the 10 years. But, you know, it's a huge piece, far beyond something that we could put on on our own. Mm. But last year, our Roland Peelman from the Canberra International Festival approached me saying would we like to come to the festival and that he was very interested in presenting the creation and I thought that was a wonderful idea, especially seeing that the festival actually happens to fall just after our actual birth date, which is officially the 22nd of April. So it sort of felt like the, you know, planets were all aligning. Mm. It was meant to be. But, yes, it's it's huge. And, I, and it's the first time, I believe, it's been performed in Australia on period instruments. Oh, really? Yes. And I think, you know, a lot of people have wanted to do it <laughs> really for a long time. But every time I, I brought it up within the last 10 years, Everyone would kind of go, oh, yes, but it's really hard. It will be so hard to get that many period instrument plays together because of the sheer number of uh, instruments you need. So it's not just the vocalists and so on. It's also the fact that you need a bigger bigger ensemble. Well, it's the the players players, because in Australia, you know, there are limited or, you know, a small pool of specialists. And for this particular work, we need, um, you need a contrabassoon, um, for instance, and, and that particular instrument, we have um, mm. brought someone from overseas who has this amazing uh, Viennese contrabassoon, which has a brass bell, uh, which would have been the instrument that Haydn would have intended it to be played with. So, you know, that's really exciting to yeah. have that instrument in Australia. I'm not sure that it's ever been performed you know, that instrument itself has ever been used in Australia. There are three bassoons, two trumpets, three trombones, timpani, clarinets, oboes, three flutes. Uh, so, yeah, you know, for a group like us, who's a relatively small organisation, um, that's aside from obviously the strings and the soloists and the right. choir, mm. it's a big orchestra and a big production to put on. So, you know, and for me, it's one of his most incredible works. Mm. Uh, so he I feel quite late very chuffed. He did. He he wrote it. He he had two very um, important visits to London. One of those happened. He went over um, Salomon, who was a friend of his, but a violinist who is famous for bringing Haydn to London. But he was actually a, a bit of an entrepreneur in London. He went over and convinced Haydn to come over to London in 1791 for a first visit, and then again in 1794 and. During those two visits, I can't, I'm not sure which um, 
happened in what order exactly, but Haydn had the chance, uh, and if you, he's got these amazing uh, notebooks where you can see he writes down little notes about things that happened, and there's all sorts of very curious and interesting things like, um, you know, about the price of um, something, that, you know, price of something he bought or, you know, something like there was a fire at such and such a place or a, or a social incident. It, it's very interesting. Or he had but, such and such for dinner or something. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and in those notes, so he, it's sort of like little notes he's just made for himself and there's a note in there about how he, you know, he had heard mass performances with over a thousand performers of the Messiah and also... Um, Israel and Egypt by Handel. And I think he was very inspired by hearing those works and he he went away and um, at the same time Van Sweeten, who was a diplomat and a friend of Haydn and very involved in in um, musical circles, had sort of been kind of angling along with Salomon to get this libretto um, from Milton's Paradise Lost, um, which I think was originally sort of intended for ha- Handel to write something too. They sort of got it into Haydn's hands and sort of saying, you've got to write a work, uh, mm. you know, about the creation around those poems, which were about the creation. And that's a whole, you know, whole topic we could talk about for a very long time. But he went away and I think he, one of the things I love about Haydn is that I think he was such a humble man. And I, I think he, he. I, I was reading an article just the other day where it talks about um, in the opening of the work that he came up with the, the representation of chaos, which is, you know, I guess where it's like everything's forming. Mm. And it's this incredible, incredible harmonies and colours which must have absolutely shocked people when they heard them for the first time. And he apparently there's this amazing moment, which I think it's giving me goosebumps just thinking about it because every time I think about that moment in the opening where you hear and there was light and then this incredible C major chord happens. I mean, it is, I'm, I'm getting a lot of goosebumps. <laughs> um, he kept those bars secret from anyone. He didn't want anyone to see them before it was heard Wow. And I think he he was he, I think he was either a bit nervous about you know he wanted to surprise everyone and for everyone to have that maximum effect, but he but he also then reflected when he when he later you know saying to critics please be kind on my work you know he even though it's this incredible work he was still thinking I haven't done I hope I've done this justice um, what I've written and and I think he he really wanted it to be a work that was remembered for a long time and he felt very proud of it but he but he was such a yeah humble person that he was still criticizing his own way of presenting it well i, I think we have to have a little bit of it now don't good we? yay <laughs> so this You'll is actually, the moment i'm talking about yeah it is the moment you're talking about we're going to hear harry christopher's conducting the handel and haydn society
divided the light from the darkness. The Handel and Haydn Society under Harry Christophers for the opening of Haydn's creation. And that was the first choice of my guest in conversation today, Sky McIntosh, founder, artistic director and principal violin of the Australian Haydn Ensemble. Yes, it does give you goosebumps indeed, doesn't it? Yes. Such a wonderful opening and so mysterious and so much not of its time, really. It, it, as you say, it's almost ahead of its time, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I recently, there's another oratorio he wrote um, the Return of Tobias, which is not very well known, I think, anyway. I didn't know about it until I sort of was delving into different repertoires, uh, which he wrote a bit earlier, and, and there's some amazing similar material in that work. Yeah. But um, recently we performed uh, for the Adelaide Festival the Haydn Three Times of Day symphonies, so morning, noon and night, which were, you know, very early, six seven and eight, and he wrote those back in 1761 when he just started his job working for the Esterhazy family. And, um, you know, those the sort of references to nature, the sunrise effect, those kinds of things. I sort of, yeah, having these two projects side by side, one performing those early works and then now focusing on the creation, I sort of thought, you know, even though he he obviously had to go through this massive journey to get to that stage in his compositional development, I feel like you know, the seeds of those ideas of the, the sort of uh, these incredible harmonic explorations and colours that are sort of representing nature mm. were all there really from an early age, earlier age when he was about 30 and then you have the other end of life mm. um, when he wrote this immense work. I mean, I think it was shocking and I think there, there were people, uh, I think there was a quote saying, you know, that moment when the light happened, it was as if these rays darted out of the composer's eyes in intensity because it was so moving and mm. powerful. Uh, and I think, yeah, it was pretty out there. And that's why it's one of the reasons it's so powerful still today because it, it's such incredible writing. Mm. Well, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you now, if I may. Oh. <laughs> I believe you started the violin at an impressively early age. Can you tell me about what I, you remember yes. about that? You're four, I believe. Uh, four and a half. Four and a half. As old as that. Half, so, okay, so half when, makes a difference. When you're four and having a five-year-old <laughs> myself, I know that, you know, the difference between four and five is, you know, it's quite important if you're four and a half or if you're four and three quarters <laughs> or five. Um, uh, but, yes, I did start quite young and my dad was a musician and so was his sister. My dad was a lot older than my mother, so he, he passed away a few years ago. Um, he would have been 95, actually, wow. uh, this week if he oh. was still alive. But he, he was sort of an old-school jazz because he, he was uh, he actually grew up in around Grafton in Almara and then came to Sydney, ended up, he worked sort of in technical work but ended up being a jazz musician, a clarinet player, playing in all the big bands around Sydney and um, later sort of did a lot more saxophone playing. But when he married my mum, they ended up moving up to northern New South Wales. And, yeah, I mean, Dad, you know, always, we always had music around because he was teaching a lot and he was mm. doing gigs. He, was, he used to go around the local areas and play for all the country balls and, and all yeah. of that kind of stuff. And 
I remember actually very clearly, you know, mum and dad sort of saying, what, you know, what instrument are you going to play? Thinking I'd choose the flute or the clarinet. And I said, I want to play the violin. And they were like, oh, okay. why?" You know, and I don't know why I wanted to do it, but I just knew very strongly I wanted to play the violin. Um, my sister, who was a bit older, she played the piano, so I definitely didn't want to do the same instrument as her. Of course not. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I wanted to do it, but I think, you know, I... I um, we started off with a teacher who was sort of family friend, actually a very interesting guy, Barry Singh, who was featured a few times on Australian Story um, for his very interesting story, um, a sort of uh, Sikh background mm. from banana farming background growing up in Northern New South Wales as well. And he taught me when I was quite young. But I think, you know, I, I was probably a bit too young, you know, having taught myself now at that age to really do it properly for a while. But I really wanted to do it and... You know, that growing up in that area, that has definitely shaped a lot of where I've ended up now. And, uh, you know, I... In what way? Well, for me, you know, I didn't know a lot of other kids who were playing music outside my family. I mean, there were other kids at school who were doing violin a bit, but I didn't, you know, really realise you could do it as a career. Like, it just didn't occur to me because I didn't, you know, we were in the country. Even though your father was making yeah, a but he was a, he was a jazz musician, so it was kind of in his sort of, sort of my little world, I guess, of probably mm. being a bit naive in, in this kind of country area. I didn't know that you could do youth orchestra or that you could become an orchestral musician. Mm. I mean, I sort of, I guess I sort of did, but mum and dad were always sort of saying, oh, that, that's, you know, too hard. No, no, um, you won't make, you know, a career out of that. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's very important for me um, with the group. We've always been very committed to regional touring because I've, I think I feel like, you know, I never had that put in front of me. I did know musicians, but, you know, I didn't really know or it didn't occur to me, even if I did know, uh, that I could do that. And so I think, yeah, it's really important to me to, you know, touring to, to regional areas is actually really important to me because I feel like... For children, students especially, it's really important to have that kind of music or, you know, professional musicians put in front of you so you actually are aware that, that they exist and that what and can it's something happen. for you and you can do, yeah. Exactly. And um, I was quite fortunate. Mum and Dad actually somehow found out about this violinist, John Willison, and his wife, Carmel Kane, who had bought a weekend house in the Limpenwood Valley, which is out near Talgum. I don't know if you're in the Tweed Valley, so which is where I grew up, Mwilumbar and the Tweed Valley. Um, and, yeah, they, they started the Talgum Festival, if anyone knows about that, and yeah. I performed at one of the very first Talgum Festivals as in the sort of young artist class performance that they'd set up. But um, John John is English. Um, Carmel is from Wagga, actually, originally, but she had most of her career in London. She ended up being head of strings at Royal Academy and also being the uh, leader of Academy of St Martin in the Fields for a long time. And her husband, John, he was the principal second of the LPO for a long time. And uh, they got jobs um, at the Queensland Conservatorium and came back from England. Um, but, yeah, they bought this weekend place in the Tweed Valley. And mum and dad somehow found out about this great violinist. Or, I mean, I didn't really have Carmel on my radar at that point, but John, who was teaching and could give me lessons on the weekends when and they, when they the were coming though, yeah. down. And mm. um, so, yeah, I started going for lessons with John. And I so think how old are you that now? was a bit of a turning point. I think I was about 10 okay. at that point. Um, 
And yeah, I think, you know, really, if that hadn't have happened, I don't know if I would have progressed to the level because there were a lot of influences from the relationships with both of them. I I started with John for a while, uh, for a few years, I think probably about five years, and then ended up later on going to Carmel and she was my teacher at the con in Brisbane when I did my undergrad. But yeah, I think that their influence and sort of having a little bit of an insight into their world really shaped and progressed my playing. Mm. Um, uh, You know, John was a great, he was always you know, important, bringing violins over from England. I loved, I actually loved older violins and that sort of, you know, from from the 18th century, I was always quite fascinated by the sort of an, antiques and, and that kind of thing. Mm. So I think, you know, I, I loved um, learning about that from him and their influence certainly played a big role in me sort of ending up where you are uh, now, Where basically. I am now, yeah, mm, absolutely. Well, I think we have to have another piece of music now. And uh, we, well, it's the Australian Haydn Ensemble, so we have to have a bit more Haydn. Uh, there's <laughs> there's a, a minimum quota, I imagine. Uh, so tell, us, tell us what we're going to hear now. Uh, well, it's our own recording of um, Haydn's String Quartet Opus 20, number four, the first movement. <laughs> Thank you. 
the opening movement of Haydn's String Quartet, Opus 20, Number 4, performed for us by the Australian Haydn Quartet, one of whom is sitting right in front of me now for In Conversation, <laughs> the founder, artistic director and principal of violin, Sky McIntosh. Sky, why did you want us to hear that movement in particular? Well, I, lo- I love all Haydn string quartets. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, his string quartets are just so incredible and we're, you know, I'm still learning so much by exploring them as we go along gradually having a chance to perform different quartets. But that particular quartet we recorded back at the beginning um, of the sort of Haydn Ensemble's life uh, when we went over to Banff actually and worked with someone who's become a very dear friend, a violinist from Canada, Mark Destrebay. And we worked on that quartet with him and then we recorded it after we came back. That's just such a special experience for me, that I hold very dear, that that mm. whole time when we weren't over. And we also, uh, we worked on it again when we, we went to New York the following year and had a little sort of residency at Juilliard. But, yeah, it's very special to me because I think, you know, working with someone like Mark, I mean, as you, you know, having a mentors as you're going along who is mm. sort of more progressed violinists and especially in um, early music, having sort of, um, he's a very inspiring person, uh, someone I really look up to, Mark. So, yeah, I think that that work sort of always reminds me of him and um, all the advice and support that he's given me. Is there something that you think is the most significant thing that you picked up from him, whether it's an outlook or a method of playing or method of approaching music? Oh, that's hard to define because Mark, he's one of those wonderful people that, you know, whenever you say his name <laughs> to people who know him they say oh Mark oh, I love Mark <laughs> and he is he's just he's a very very generous person who has a very uh, sort of way of inspiring you uh, he has yeah he, he sort of uplifts people and but he has this very practical way of explaining I mean he plays beautifully but he's also a really down-to-earth person quite modest you know he's uh, one of the concert masters of the orchestra of the 18th century that orchestra is, was Franz Bruggen's orchestra when he was alive and you know he's had he's had a lot of experience in early music and there's just such a lot to learn about style and yeah he's really great at imparting those details and also just kind of making you kind of go, oh, right, yeah, that's easy. He, you know, he makes it feel doable. Demystifies it. Yeah, demystifies it and he also is just incredibly supportive in a way that you feel very uplifted by. He, He came out and actually performed with us. He played on our our orchestral disc, the Haydn album, uh, he led the harpsichord concerto recording and did that project with us. Um, so he's sort of got that history as well that he's worked with the group out here in Australia. And I met him initially, actually, I should say, when he came out to lead the Brandenburg Orchestra right. because he's been friends with Paul Dyer for a very long time. I think they were students together ah. in um, Holland. And so he's known, so that's how I initially met Mark and we sort of became friendly with him and then we ended up deciding we we would like to go over to Banff and we organized it so he could be our coach but so yeah it's been a long a long relationship so he's yeah he's just one of those kind of mentor type people that I Mm. always look to and you know write him a little email saying Mark what do you think about what do you think (laughs) handy to have those people to be able to to contact when uh, someone you need to ask uh, their advice another mentor of yours uh, from before Mark is uh, Simon Standage 
you learnt from uh, in your postgraduate era in Britain. Was that in any way uh, you know, daunting? Or yes. Did you feel- <laughs> I mean, I think at the time when I went over to England... I had no idea that you could really play on period instruments. Really? For, for me, it was, you know, I, I studied in Brisbane. There was a an early music group or a kind of Baroque orchestra at the con, but I never did that. I didn't think about doing that kind of thing at the time. And for me, coming to early music performance was, a, you know, I was sort of in my late 20s before I even, you know, realised, yeah, when I went over to England, my, my friend and colleague, Alice Rickards, who is a beautiful violinist, who is from Armadale originally, and um, we were at the con together. We both studied with Carl Mulcain, and then she'd gone over to England the year before me, and she'd said, oh, you know, when you come over, it's really great at the academy. You can have these extra lessons if you do Baroque or viola. And I thought, hmm, I think I'd like to do Baroque. I, I mean, you know, out of the Val- choice. Value for money. <laughs> well, also, I, you know, I'm quite small. The viola is, is a bit challenging for me, but... I thought she said, you know, we can also get to work with these really great and inspiring guest artists and it's always a small group so you sort of feel like you're a bit more, you know, the the advice you get is more one-to-one because you're not in the big orchestra. And so I thought, well, that sounds really great. I'll do that when I, when I go over. And so I started doing that and, yeah, I was put with Simon Standage as my teacher. You know, I'd never even held a Baroque violin. They sort of give it to you. And um, in retrospect, he's he's such an inspiring teacher. But, you know, I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing at that point. I hadn't had many because holding the instrument is very different. And he was sort of, you know, I think he um, kind of was maybe more used to people who had had more time on that at element. Least so at first touched, I was at a least bit, touched one I mean, I, I, I felt, I think I was quite terrified of him at first because I realised how amazing he was and I thought, oh, my God, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And he's sort of, you know, trying to explain it oh, to me. Oh, signing up for the extra class. Well, no, no, that's I shouldn't. I meant that in a jokey yeah, way that I I, initially I thought it was a great way to have, yeah, yeah. get you know, have extra lessons and learn about this repertoire. But I wasn't imagining I was going to get, you know, really fall in love with this way of doing things. It was a bit of a surprise to me that I sort of really liked it. Um, but, yes, when I first, they sort of, you know, they have an amazing instrument collection at the academy and they give you a violin and you can keep that and practice on it. But it is, you know, when you're first starting out, you know, you don't have the chin rest, you don't have the shoulder rest, it, the, you're on gut strings, it's at a different pitch. There are a lot of things to suddenly absorb when you first take it up and you also obviously need to really practice it like it's a different instrument and you know I was still studying my modern violin mm. and you know there's, there was a big it's probably a bit less so now but at that time the attitude was a bit kind of you know taking up the baroque instrument you know can be conflicting to your modern technique because it is quite different yeah. and when you're a student that's hard to go between those two things or it was you know challenging for me at the beginning because I you know took a while to sort of get enough time on the Mm. instrument and I started doing different you know I did some different projects we worked with um, Monica Huggett um, Catherine McIntosh who is was became a really dear friend and uh, mentor as well to me I also did the Britain Pierce Young Artist Program for a couple of years where I had I played in the Baroque Orchestra as well as the Modern Mm. Orchestra and yeah I just gradually fell more and more in love with it. So the difference between the two violins is not just the fact that the Baroque violin has gut strings on it. It's also there's other... Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of other aspects. It's not just the gut strings, you see. That? So, so why, why, why can't you, at the risk of sounding incredibly naive, why no. can't you put a chin rest 
and a shoulder rest on a Baroque violin and... Well, you can and um, definitely, you know, I had a hand injury a few years ago and I've recently been using a shoulder rest sometimes when I went... For instance, for the recent projects we did, um, I was playing very high and uh, that injury, which was a non-violin-related injury, actually, was a silly accident where a chair sort of hit me oh. in the hand, but it made, you know, my thumb gets very sore. So, you know, you can do that, but the the, the reason, obviously, the chin rest and the shoulder rest were not invented in the Baroque time and the combination of the gut strings, which are a lot more pliable than a metal string, so you sort of... Uh, leaning into the string, say, a bit more. And then you've got the earlier bows, which were a lot lighter, and they also have a, a sort of open frog. So at the bottom of the bow where you hold it, there's a little thing called a frog, which is the bit where the hair sort of joins on Attaches, and it goes yeah. around and it causes, it sort of makes the tension. And in the earlier bows, they didn't have what's called a ferrule, which is a sort of thing, The sil- on a modern bow, it's a bit of silver at the base of the little, hair that yes. holds it flat. Mm. So the... The Baroque and classical bows don't have that. So then, you know, it makes the hair a little bit more sort of flexible. And the bow itself is more designed to be sort of tapered and more flexible. So you have those two. You've got this kind of more like stretchy combination of the bow going into the string, which is very stretchy being gut. Mm. And then, you know, when you're holding the instrument without the chin rest and the shoulder rest is sort of... It changes the technique in that the way the bow is connected to the instrument is a bit more organic is the only way I can describe it. But you're actually sort of using uh, the holding of Mm. the instrument. You can move the violin around a bit more in a different way. That's probably the easiest way to explain it, which changes the way you make the sound. You know, the modern bow is actually designed to even out the sound because it's this is a taut model bow is the modern bow it was the came from the maker um who designed that bow and you know actually at the end of Haydn's life sort of into the early 19th century the taut bow which is the one that modern players use today had been sort of that design had kind of become the norm um in the early 19th century but, you know, for instance, I use a bow, which is, is a transitional bow for playing sort of most things, which looks a bit like a modern bow, but it's got a classical frog. So, I don't know, mm. it sort of changes. There's a whole element of that. There's so. an evolution. Yeah, there's the an evolution yeah. process yeah. of the instruments and the bows that really informs the playing. So, yeah, it mm. is quite different. And when you have the chin rest on there and the shoulder rest, it sort of locks the instrument in a way that you can't move it around quite as much. It sort of changes the way you might make the shapes of mm. the sound. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when you're trying to create that historically informed performance, the reason you go to that trouble, I guess, of having the old-style instrument, et cetera, et cetera, is to be playing in a way that they might have been playing That's exactly right. in the days of yore to try and get the full effect. But it's also a style of playing, isn't it? It's not just, it's yes, not just the instruments, are, it's also within, how you interpret the music. Absolutely. And the, the early instruments, what they do is they inform. We take a lot of knowledge from mm. reading treaties that were written in the time about, like, you know, Leopold Mozart is a big violin one who was Mozart's father. Uh, he wrote a, one of the first treaties on violin playing and there's lots of information in there about how to articulate, um, which is, you know, are you making the sound smooth or, you know, with stops between them, that kind of thing, mm. and what are the rules are. There's a whole bunch of sort of guidelines which you can then 
you know, interpret in different ways. But there were also different people, you know, there were earlier Baroque ideas and, and different schools of thought within Europe to start with. So you sort of, you know, you might have the French kind of way of playing as opposed to the sort of uh, German uh, sort of Spohr school of playing. And even within that, there's a big scope of varieties of interpretation. But mm. I often say if we're doing, you know, workshops or classes with kids who are using modern modern bows, you know, their bow is <laughs> designed to do the exact opposite of what ours is, which is to kind of the Baroque bow kind of decays the sound up to the top as you go through the stroke, whereas theirs is designed to sustain, sustain the sound. The sound yes. So you have to sort of, you know, be thinking about that when you're playing Baroque or classical repertoire going back always to what did the composer um, intend and I very strongly believe that it, it, it definitely tells you, you know, the instruments yes. tell you what to do. There's a big scope within that as well to interpret. So it's not just what the composer intended, it's also, I suppose, what the composer expected to hear. Yes, that is a, that is true and that's a big topic. I, I actually did my master's research on looking at, for instance, um, how Beethoven would have expected his violin sonatas to be heard and elements of portamento, which is sort of uh, the sliding notes because in vocal uh, treaties at the time they were doing these kind of ornaments. And so, yeah, it's there's a whole argument for like, well, depending on when you're performing it, at that point in time, how what was the norm? What who was doing what? And there are conflicting examples within those times because obviously, mm. depending on what part of Europe they lived in, what the trend, they didn't have you know the communication in the way we did. So you know, all, all sorts of things are happening in different places. Mm. But I think there's um, yeah, there's obviously a you know a fundamental just difference between how it would sound if you're playing it on a modern setup instrument. Mm with metal strings and a modern bow as opposed to an earlier Baroque or classical set-up instrument. But obviously if you're playing on a modern violin, you can still imitate those shapings of the notes mm. um, as long as you're, in, you know, uh, informed and uh, it's certainly, you know, lots of people can do that. So um, are you happy for these works to be performed on modern instruments and perhaps in uh, a more modern style or does it kind of make you go, oh, no, don't do that? I, mean, I, suppose, I suppose I'm asking you, are know, both valid? <laughs> well, look, I think there are people who do it very well. Um, mm. I mean, you know, Ricardo Manassi, I don't I know if you've come across him, he's an incredible violinist who actually um, I met when he came out with the Brandenburg Orchestra uh, years ago and he's, you know, he, I remember listening recently to a recording he's made of C.P. Buck uh, symphonies with a sort of more modern group but they're definitely playing in a very period-informed way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's totally possible to do that it really depends on the on the interpretation, but it, yeah, it's it's obviously more. Well, it's, I don't know if it's more challenging. It's just different if you're mm. playing it on a different instrument. It's it, it just has there are different elements which have yeah. to be considered in order to make it work in style. Mm. And yeah. <laughs> well, another piece of music now before we get too further on, and that's uh, a bit of Mozart. Uh, and this uh, violin concerto, the opening of the third violin concerto, is actually is an interesting reason why we're going to hear it, I believe. Yes. Well, I actually recently recorded this work with ABC, which has not been released yet. That will be coming out later this year. And, yeah, it's something I never, you know, dreamed I would have the opportunity to do. And when you asked me about the interview and I started thinking about this, I, I realised that actually I studied this work 
one of the first violin concertos I studied was this particular piece way back in Mwoolimba with my teacher John Willison when I was about 10 or maybe a bit older than that probably 12 I think but you know to then now have just recorded that with ABC is uh, feels really amazing and it's pretty exciting. <laughs> Josvan Imasel directing Anima Eterna, the violinist Midori Seiler, with the opening of Mozart's Violin Concerto No. 3 in G, the choice of my guest in conversation today, the founder artistic director of the Australian Haydn Ensemble, violinist Sky McIntosh. That violinist there, quite an extraordinary performance, uh, and uh, you're quite a fan of hers, I believe. I am. I love Midori, and, you know, she's one of those really incredible, versatile people who sort of can do seemingly anything and and sort of really people feel, I think, when you mention, similar to Mark, when you mention her name, people seem to be oh, like, oh, oh yes, God. Midori, I love Midori. And she is so nice and, you know, she was always an idol of mine, uh, you know, just hearing all of her recordings. She did, if anyone's interested, you can find on YouTube, she did this amazing uh, choreographed uh, performance of uh, The Four Seasons Berliner Academy for Ancient Music, um, Alter Musica Berlin, I think it's called. And, yeah, you can find it on YouTube. You just look up Four Seasons, Midori Sala. And, yeah, I, I sort of, you know, I'd always looked up to her and then at one point I thought, ooh, 
maybe I can ask her to come out and play, even though I, I hadn't met her. <laughs> I just really wanted to you don't ask, uh, you work don't with get. her. <laughs> and so I got in touch with her and she very kindly agreed to come uh, to my, you know, absolute delight. And uh, she was wonderful and so generous and kind and down to earth and yeah, I mean, she she came out here not really, you know, having met me in person mm. before, which, you know, she didn't have to do that. She's very sought after in Europe and mm. um, we had a lovely time and we've we've been talking about her coming back again Great. Um, soon. So look out for that if it happens. <laughs> I really hope it will be possible. You know, I think she comes from a family. She's half uh, Japanese. I think her mother was Japanese and her father was German. I think she was brought up mainly in Germany, yeah. but she has uh, sisters who also play instruments, uh, violin, sorry, violin and cello, I think. And so she, she's she got that really musical, and I think her parents, I think her mother was a pianist and her father was a violinist or something like that. But, you know, she's just one of those people who you can't sort of look away when she's playing because it, she draws you in. Um, but she's also just very humble, and for me that's yeah. so nice. And, and, and she plays period violin very, very, very amazingly. So... Yeah. Yeah, I love her. <laughs> so I, I need to know what inspires you to form the Australian Haydn Ensemble. When I came back from England, I, as I talked about before, I, you know, I think playing period instruments that, you know, was over there for a very relatively short time, sort of just under four years. And so I was relatively new to period instruments. I came back to Australia and... I had sort of started doing more and more of it. I, I, I auditioned for the Brandenburg Orchestra and I um, started to play with them and I, I was really loving it and I sort of then got a scholarship, a, a postgraduate award scholarship at the Sydney University of Sydney and the Sydney Conservatorium to um, study a Master's in Baroque and because I thought, well, you know, I'm doing this, I'm really loving it, but I, I really want to really know what I'm doing mm. um, and, and spend more time working on this if I'm going to be playing in the Brandenburg and these other groups. And so once I'd started doing that more, I, I really thought, well, there's no going back now. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't, yeah, for me, I couldn't really go back to not doing it and half doing it just didn't kind of feel right. Mm. And so then I thought, well, you know, the Brandenburg is wonderful. Uh, I was really keen, though, to play quartets and I, I love, I've always loved Haydn, Mozart, um, Beethoven, um, and I was just really drawn towards wanting to play that later repertoire. Mm. And, you know, Brandenburg mainly is a Baroque orchestra. They sort of do one classical program a year. And so I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could do some of our own projects space a bit more, in yeah. between mm. those concerts? And so that's sort of how the group, the idea for the group was born, um, just as a kind of something I wanted to do on yeah. top of what I was already doing to sort of, you know, I thought there's all these amazing players around who also are not getting to play this repertoire very much because, you know, there's limited opportunities. So that's sort of where the idea came from. I think if you told me how much work it was going to be, I mean, I, you know, I've worked incredibly hard, but, you know, it's it's been, you know, it's hard starting yeah. a new group and the success of it has been amazing and, you know, but that's for, out of a lot of hard work uh, combined with many wonderful people becoming involved along the way who supported me and the incredible artists. We have a very supportive board that, you know, has developed over time and other people who are associated people, staff, um, other supporters who have really played 
a huge role in its development. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, starting a any arts organisation is not a small thing. Mm. You know, what I had a lot wish, of energy. What do you wish I, you'd known at the time that you now know? Apart from everything, <laughs> well, I have learnt so much from doing it. So you know, all of that knowledge that I've acquired on you know how to run an arts organisation, all the setting up, you know the the sort of subtleties of, you know, managing, going between when you're a performer and then you have to also run a group. There's a lot of knowledge there that takes time to acquire. Mm. And I think, you know, for me, you know, I have, yeah, I've learnt a huge amount over the last 10 years and I think, yeah, if I'd known a lot of that stuff, earlier on it would have helped me but it was very much just figuring it out as we went you know mm. and there, there were limited resources for finding out how to start up a group um mm. you have it was very much a kind of oh right we need that thing now okay i'll just go and ask some people who've done it before and mm. see what they say and then kind of trying to figure it out as we went and and it, you know it, it, i think somehow i think my background as well i maybe i'd worked um, we didn't talk about it, but before I went <laughs> to uni, I actually studied picture framing. I was a frame. I did oh. sort of picture framing for a few years and I, I ran a shop and I, you know, sort of had all of that, I guess, not extensive business experience because I was young. I didn't really know what I was doing, I think. But, you know, that kind of helped me later on. And mm. there's this uh, crossing over of having to be a player but also having to do all this other stuff that people don't see mm. that just when you're running a small group you have to do that stuff yourself yeah. and even you know it's just people don't realize I think sometimes how much work goes on behind the scenes in just getting things to happen when you don't have you know 10 staff um yes. and that that's been very challenging minions, <laughs> minions yes but I I'm really lucky you know I've had great help and support, but there's always more, something more to do. Mm. And, you know, I feel like we've reached a new plateau now of, well, not plateau, that's not really what we're doing, but sort of level of establishment where we sort of almost passed through that initial startup phase, which was a, a slog, I'm be honest. You know, there was times when, you know, you're sort of there at you know, 2 o'clock in the morning writing a grant application or you know, trying to keep all the balls in the air and, mm. you know, as a mum as well, I've got a small child um, who's now five, but, you know, bringing him up during that time, playing concerts at the same time, leading the orchestra when I've got, you know, that anding admin was like mm. often very challenging to keep, you know, Every, everyone happy yeah. <laughs> and mm. everything mm. going. Mm. Um, but, you know, I've really enjoyed that challenge and I wouldn't change it. I, I think, yeah, I feel really privileged to have been able to, do this and have so many incredible musicians who have wanted to play, who've been committed to the group and making it a success because it's not, you know, I'm sort of running it, but there are all these other people who, you know, you can't, you know, what they say, it's like you, you need a village to yeah. grow a... Anything. Raise a child. <laughs> Raise a child. But need, it's, it's a bit like that. You need a village to uh, to start an orchestra, you, you to know, continue an orchestra. And so, you know, it's not just me. Uh, there's a lot of supporting people there who really have helped me mm. um, to get it to this point. Has it evolved and grown in the way you hoped it would, pandemics aside, obviously? Oh, yes. Well, gosh, going into that, the last few years have been very challenging with the pandemic. Um, I think it has. I mean, I look back to a lot of, you know, the milestones 
I, I feel very proud of what we've achieved and the level of the group. Yeah, I think it has really exceeded my thoughts on where it might mm. go in terms of just the establishment. You know, we've got a wonderful CEO who I'm working with almost full time. It's just sort of the setup of it now feels like, you know, it's really established in that way. And that really is so amazing because I started from nothing mm. with one concert, a few flyers, a poster I'd made on my computer with a mm. with word, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, and then here we are 10 years later and... With CD album launches and... Uh, yeah, and yeah. amazing. We just performed these three incredible concerts at the Adelaide Festival, which was such an amazing experience mm. with incredible uh, musicians on stage, um, wonderfully appreciative audience and, you know, I I just feel so pleased with where we're at. Yeah. So. so the name Haydn, you, you adopted that because he's a really long-lived composer, I guess, that encompasses the uh, entire era? Yeah, I th- I sort of, when we were trying to decide on the name, we were sort of thinking, well, you know, should it be the uh, the classical players or, you know, what could we call it? You know, there's a lot of names, obviously, when you start something like this, you know, brainstorming, what, what identity are we going to give it? And I sort of thought a lot about Haydn and that he's really this central figure of the time who's coming out of the Baroque but very much progressed everything almost, wouldn't say on his own because, mm. you know, he, but every, everyone was looking to him. And, you know, he interestingly I um, was looking a lot at his early life recently as part of the project we're doing later in the year with John Bell, which is sort of based around the story of Haydn's whole life and, and looking at, you know, that he actually worked very closely with Porpora when he was in his 20s. He was sort of Porpora's assistant um, and lived in the same house or building as him. Yeah, you don't often think about that when you think, well, I don't, mm. you know, that that's, you know, Porpora's very much in the Italian Baroque and then, you know, Haydn's kind of coming out of that tradition but, he, you know, he really... You know, he's got that nickname of the father of the symphony and the father of the string quartet. And, you know, he, he really was that. So for me, that felt like the right fit for this central figure who then, you know, there are all these people stemming out from him, either looking back, like he was also looking to people like C.P. Bach or Porpora or, and taking mm. some of those ideas. But he, you know, then, you know, Mozart, Beethoven and, and then a lot of other, you know, people like, who we love to perform who are not as well known like Boccherini, um, you know, those people were really looking to him and others, but, you know, he was this central person that really inspired so much mm. to happen. I mean, I know they didn't all wake up one day and proclaim the Baroque era was dead and we're now in the classical yes. era and there's a transition, but, but what is it that sort of marks the change between the Baroque style of music and the classical style of music? Oh, well, that's a hard thing in to say. In ten words or less, no. <laughs> and it's a really hard thing to say, but... I mean, particularly Haydn, like the Opus 20 quartets, for instance, all of the last movements are fugues. You know, he was still sort of harking back to these kind of rock devices, the early symphonies that, that I mentioned before, the Haydn times of day. I think I feel like they're very modelled on a sort of almost like a concerto grosso kind of idea with solos and from the Baroque in style. But then they're sort of, I guess, you know, when you're moving in to the more classical era, you you had this more complex roles of the different parts 
Say, for instance, in the string quartets, you know, the style, the way the parts interact, it wasn't earlier quartets of Haydn might be more focused on the first violin being a solo and then sort of accompanying. But then by the time you get to around the Opus 20, or actually before that, but yeah, there's sort of more, each part has an important it, for, role to Four play. equals, yeah, and that's that's basically what he brings to the string quartet, isn't it? I think so. And then, mm. you know, you have this, I mean, there are many things happening, um, but the, the different sort of developed use of harmony and the idea of rhetoric, the way that the sort of compositional devices that they use that were sort of, you know, hidden inside the the music that gave structures, the sonata form, that, but then there's also within that this sort of schemata idea of what certain elements meant and as all of that was changing everything was really bound up in philosophy and the mm. idea of the enlightenment and sort of all of that so yeah it was really you know it, it is a different sound world and but also there you know Haydn's music often does have elements of the Brock that I think we kind of slightly don't notice so much because mm. um we don't relate them to being as being Baroque. Um, but, yeah, there are certain elements that he definitely carried over. Mm. Well, Sky McIntosh, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. There's so much we could cover, but before I let you go, I need to you to introduce um, the final work that we're going to hear, which is uh, C.P. Bach uh, and his cello concerto in A minor. Why do you love this work? I love it. I love C.P. Bach. I think he in terms of the sort of lesser-known um, sort of transitional and, yeah, sort of late Baroque, early classical, if you could call it that, composers, he's, you know, he was one of the most famous musicians at the time. Uh, everyone, you know, was looking to him, even Haydn included, in terms of style and the development of composition. And I just he has this incredible way of writing these very quirky sort of sounding... Mm. Um, figures and, and the harmonies he uses and the sort of emotions that he brings up. Um, and I feel like this cello concerto is uh, just a great example of his work. We've performed it before with uh, Daniel Yeadon and we're actually performing a different concerto, the A major, with Danny uh, later in the year for our end of year project. Um, but the A minor concerto is just one of my favourite CPE Bach works. Well, Sky McIntosh, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Violinist Sky McIntosh, founder and artistic director of the Australian Haydn Ensemble. Their performance of Haydn's creation is part of the Canberra International Music Festival on April 29 and 30, and they're performing at the City Recital Hall Angel Place on the 1st of May. Get along to australianhaydn.com.au for bookings and to find out about all the wonderful things they have planned for the rest of the year too. That's all for In Conversation for today. Remember, you can catch up with previous editions at 2mbsfinemusicsydney.com slash inconversation or by searching 2MBS In Conversation in your preferred podcast app. And do please leave a rating and review. I'm Simon Moore and this is 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. 